0: I would like to begin this morning <clears throat> with the words from this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the, fl- in the clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Some of you may be familiar with William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. It's been a favorite of Western culture since he penned it in the 19th century. It's easy to understand why when you hear that poem, it's hard not to hear the themes of determination, of strength, of courage, of resilience. It's all through it. But like with any poem, if you sit with it long enough and you listen to what Henley writes, it's also not hard to miss the themes of hubris of anger, of isolation, the sense of futility, and the loneliness of the struggle, which is life. In many ways, Invictus is the anthem of the postmodern life, uncertainty and fear combated only by hubris and autonomy. What a contrast, what a stark contrast to the poem that Randy just read to us. I don't know if you know this, but Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 were originally a poem. Paul did not originally pen those words. It was a poem, possibly a song, possibly a hymn that the early Christians sang in their worship services just like we're singing this morning. Very similar to the themes of the hymn we sang called uh, How Can It Be? I don't know if you picked up on some of that. So this, these verses, these six verses was a song, a hymn, a poem that the early Christians would recite. What a contrast to Henley's words of determination and resilience to hear of such self-sacrifice and loving giving away of one's life. If Invictus is the anthem of the postmodern life, then humility is the anthem of the Christ centered life. And that is exactly Paul's point and why he used this amazing early church poem, this hymn, making the point to the Philippians about the life that's so essential for community is marked by and clothed in sacrificial humility. Keep in mind, this amazing passage that many of us probably know from its own, standing on itself, is in the larger context of Paul saying, this is how you're to live in community with one another, to have humility, not self-seeking, not glory-thieving, as you remember from last week, but a life-giving humility. And then he launches into this amazing passage showing how Christ himself lived that kind of humility. And I gotta tell you this morning, as we look at this passage, uh, I kinda wanna take my shoes off uh, and put them aside because we're on hallowed ground. We, we are on very sacred soil when we study this passage. And, and I know I say that every week that this passage of scripture is amazing, but I mean, what am I gonna do? It is. I mean, these things are just amazing truths that can re- re- rearrange the furniture of your soul if you let it. In these six verses, we read about the preexistent Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection and ascension and exaltation of Christ, finally the vindication and triumph of Christ. Just in these six, six verses, we go from eternity past to glorious future. These verses are probably some of the most theologically dense verses of the New Testament, and like all good theology, the aim is of most practical importance, the unity of the church through the humility of Christ. That's Paul's aim, the unity of the church through the humility of Christ himself. In fact, the application of this passage of these verses goes actually much beyond maintaining unity in the church but they're applicable to any and all uh, relationships or situations where there might be strife, uh, fracture, disharmony. If any of you have any relationships that are struggling with some fractures, disharmony, or strife, then this is a passage you wanna dial into because Paul's gonna reveal the secret of that. It is a key ingredient to Christian growth and actually human flourishing. I know that's a big, that's a big sell for a passage of scripture, but it actually is true. And the best way to prove that is to simply unpack it with you. So that's where we're going to spend the next uh, 30 minutes together, just looking at these six verses, really going to make three points, well, more like two points with a tip of the hat to what we talked about last week. So this morning in these, uh, verse 5 through 11, we're going to look at the mind of Christ, we're going to look at the humility of Christ, and we're going to look at the exaltation of Christ. Like we talked about last week when Paul started chapter 2, he was talking about being worthy of the gospel when it comes to the internal pressures and forces that exist within a church. He talked about being worthy of the gospel standing against the forces outside the church, but he recognized that forces within the church are more threatening to tear it apart than the things on the outside, and that's very true. And so he hammered the need for humility to not be a community that's self-seeking and, and glory-thieving, we talked about, and said that the, the way that that's gonna happen though, the way that that's gonna happen is through the mind of Christ. And I'm so glad that we get another week to actually think about the theme of humility because humility is not gonna come because we're preaching on humility. That's just not the way that works. I wish it were, but it doesn't work that way. Humility comes when we adore Christ and we worship him and see what he is, what he has done for us, that's how humility is generated in our hearts. And so we have another week to look at what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now we ended last week talking about getting into the mindset of that. Uh, The mind of of Christ is the means by which we can grow in humility and we ended with verse five. But if you notice, maybe you saw it last week, that we only looked at the first half of Paul's thought we, we had to land it last week, but the second half of his thought really part starts off in verse six. But before we jump into verse six and the rest of the passage, I want to back up and button up how last week connects with this our passage we're studying this week. We talked about having the mind of Christ is the means by which we can help generate humility by adoring Christ and worshiping for what he does, and we talked about how there's, there's two aspects of that. There's an external reality, and Paul talked about that, in Christ Jesus, the historical work of Christ, and then there's an internal application. Paul said, have this mind in you. And when we talked about the internal application, the way we did that was understanding why Christ did what he did, and we talked about his work on the cross on our behalf, But that's only part of it. And this morning we get to look at the rest of that amazing work of Christ on our behalf in these verses. And so let's look at that now, the humility of Christ. And and if you're kind of a visual person, maybe diagrams are helpful, look at these verses six through 11 as like a V. You're gonna see from verses six through eight, it all comes down, Christ from heaven to earth, and then at verse nine it turns around as Christ goes back from earth to heaven. And it's this beautiful V shape of Christ coming down in his humiliation and then Christ going up in his exaltation. And so we see that here. Verse six, Christ who though was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, from heaven to earth, from earth to a cross, and from the cross to the grave. Two things I want to say about verses six and seven, number one, actually verses six through eight. As God, Christ emptied himself, and as man, Christ humbled himself. So let's look at that first one, as God. It's something we read past really quickly, but I think it's one of the most profound uh, statements in the New Testament. Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God. So i just want to stop right here. Um, you do realize that the Greek, the, verse 6 highlights the challenge of reading a book that wasn't originally in our language. Right? As a reminder, the Bible did not come to us in English. right? It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, the New Testament in Greek. And sometimes because of that, there are challenges in how one language relates to another and we see that here in verse six. Paul says in the original, the morphe, speaking of of the form of Christ, Morphe, the word we translate form, actually means essence. It means the, the isness of something, something's, something's core. Uh, in philosophical circles, it's called ontology, something's being, and Paul is saying here, though he was in the form of Christ, the being, the, the essence of God, and in English, we get words like morphology from this, we get words like metamorphosis from this, but none of the English translations that I read could fully capture what Paul is trying to express here. Now, if you have a New International Version Bible, they get a little bit better at it. They translate this as, who, being in the very nature God, uh, I think the NLT, the New Living Translation, does the best job. They just say, though he was God. And the reason I'm bringing that out is, not all translations are the same. So, just a little bit of translation theory here because a Bible is, you know, you you see there's so many translations, but there's a reason why we have them. Some translations, like the ESV, the one we use, the the objective is we want to get as close as possible to the English equivalent of whatever original word was used. So, whatever that word was in the original language, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, we want to find the Greek word that's the, the English word that most closely maps onto that. And that's really helpful to really get as close as possible to the words themselves. The problem is, languages are they're not the same, so sometimes those kind of translations kind of are wonky, right? They just kind of seem a bit odd, right? Then translations say, well, we don't want to go about the word, we just want to catch the meaning, because that's what people need. They need to understand what it says. So instead of going word for word, they translate by the meaning or thought by thought. So the NLT is a translation. Their whole objective is you just want to give you the meaning. So as a matter of fact, they don't even translate the word that's in the original Greek here because it's so confusing. They say, well, Paul's trying to tell them Jesus is God, so let's just render it, though he was God. Well, so that's very helpful, but they didn't even actually translate the Greek word morphe because it's such a weird and hard word to translate. Our translation here is actually really bad, form Right, so what do you think of when you hear form? You think of like the exterior, right? So who was in the form of God? Oh, so like it was a costume or like a, a bedsheet that he put over himself. He really wasn't God. He just kind of had this form of God. That's not it at all. But that's the best word rendering of English we have for morphē but the actual word means the very essence, the isness, the oughtness of this thing. So Paul is saying, who was in the very essence of God, and if there's any ambiguity, he follows it right up with the next phrase, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Literally, if we render it, so this is where the word for word literalness sounds really wonky, is this. Not grasp count to be equal God, Right. That's why we don't, even in our more literal translations, we don't go full on word for word, because you would be reading that and going, not grasp count to be equal, God, what is he saying there? So even our little translations try and smooth it out. But literally what Paul is saying is, the very essence of Jesus was God equal God. Friends, what we're getting at is this is one of the most powerful passages in the entire New Testament that talks about the divinity of Christ. Now typically, um, those of you who are regulars, you know I don't get so hardcore into the original language because most times our translations are awesome, they do a great job. But every now and again I need to double down and do this, especially when important doctrine's at stake like the divinity of Christ. The reason this is important, friends, to make this point, is because maybe you've done this before you were a Christian. Uh, Maybe you've heard people say this. People will often get around the demands that Jesus has upon their lives, either implicitly or explicitly, by simply denying his divinity, right? They'll say, look, they'll say something like this. Jesus was, in fact, a historical figure. Nobody can argue that point. You've got to be really, really bold or crazy to actually just outright deny the historicity of Jesus. So they don't do that. What they do is, well, Jesus was a historical figure. He was a, a kind and compassionate, and, and in some ways, a miracle healer. Gracious guy, had some great teachings. But what had happened was, over time, the, the story of Jesus was embellished. So his life became myth, and his deeds became legend. And, and, and we tacked on this whole him being divine. And when the church became an imperial power... They then elevated the man Jesus to this position of deity as a means of coercing the population who believed in him to saying God wants you to do this. Jesus is God. But from the very beginning, Jesus or his disciples, they never taught that he was actually God. See, that's that's kind of the thing people will often say. But here's the radical reality. Paul is writing this 30 years, so in the lifetime of most everyone in this room, within 30 years of Jesus' life and death, Paul is writing that Jesus is, in fact, God. As a matter of fact, Paul is quoting a church poem or song which was written even earlier than that. So if the church didn't believe and the early disciples didn't believe Jesus was God, how in the world did this slide by? Does that make sense? This would have never worked unless, of course, This is what Jesus taught. And the fact that Jesus was God was what all the early Christians actually believed. Now if you're a note taker, you write John, John chapter five verse 18 is one example, there's many of them. The reason the the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees would lose their mind (laughs) dealing with Jesus is because he kept making himself out to be God. They said this guy says he's equal with God and they would want to kill him. So it was very clear to everyone, there were no bones about it, Jesus was claiming divine status. Actually, it wasn't until later in history that the church began to doubt Jesus' divinity. So about the three hundred, four, so fourth century, they said, wait a minute. God, God, and he, no, he, he really couldn't be God. And so that's caused a huge ruckus in the church. So finally at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, all the Christians got together and hammered this out and they said, all right, Jesus is God. We got that established. So we got the the Council of Nicaea, 325. And then after that they said, "Well, well, if he's really God, then he certainly can't be human. So then they started believing that Jesus wasn't human. And they got all this ruckus again, and they all came together in con- the Council of Constantinople in 381 and said, Nope, Jesus is in fact human too. And then they said, well, wait a minute. He's God and he's human. And then they came up with this superhero theory that you had this mild-mannered Jesus who was just a man like everyone else, who then when he had to raise the dead or walk on water, he'd be the eternal Christ, the superhero, do these miracles, and then become the regular man Jesus. So you had Jesus the man, then Christ the eternal one. But they were two totally separate. It's like a superhero. It's like Clark Kent, put on his glasses, take them off. And they said, wait a minute, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. And So they finally, in the fifth century, hammered all this out at the Council of Chalcedon. They said, this is the reality. He is both truly God and truly man. Now you might be thinking, really, fifth century? Took them to the fifth century to figure all this out? So what did we believe before that? Did we not know who Jesus was? Here's the reality. Everyone knew who Jesus was. We knew these things, that Jesus was truly God and truly man. The reality was, as the gospel spread throughout the world and engaged different cultures and different religious systems and ideas of God and deity and humanity, new questions were always being asked and refinements had to come to a conclusion. And it took, quite frankly, a long time for such conceptual clarity to be ironed out in the specifics. So the church always knew what they believed, but it had to come up against false doctrine and false teaching to make them realize not everyone believes this, even those that are calling themselves Christians, we gotta hammer this out. And so it took them a while. Also, remember the first 300 years of our existence, we were being thrown to lions, right? And we were being burned alive for Nero's garden party, so there wasn't time for theological reflection or academic writing, so that didn't happen. It wasn't until Constantine declared that Christianity be with the official religion, which by effectively said, stop killing the Christians, leave them alone, and then they started to hammer all this stuff out. Friends, this this still happens today, right? Now, it happened in the early church with the core issues of our faith, like the very person of Jesus Christ, but it still happens today. So just five, six months ago, maybe some of you even heard of it, uh, we released something called the Nashville Statement. Not as cool as Nicaea and Constantinople, but you know, the, the Christianity has shifted. So in Nashville, a bunch of Christian scholars, theologians got together and hammered out issues on, wait, there's this new trend happening in culture on human sexuality, and gender identity, and all these things, and went back to scripture and said, okay, this is what scripture has always taught. We gotta be clear on this, because even people who call themselves Christians are not holding the line. So they release what's called the Nashville Statement. Just as we did back then all throughout church history, whenever the gospel's going to a new culture or the culture begins to shift, the Christians go back to scripture and say, God has spoken on this issue and by the way, if you're interested, God has spoken a ton on gender identity. This is not catching us by surprise. We did a whole conference, a whole weekend here on gender identity. God writes about that. My point simply is, it takes a while, but we always do this. Now notice something here. So so finally the council said, truly God, truly man. So here we have the pre-existent Christ. Notice though, this is where I appreciate um, our church fathers if any of you are interested. I've got this book, it's it's almost 500 pages. Uh, You don't have to read it this week, but I've been really reading this book. It's called God the Son Incarnate. Everything you could possibly wanna know on epistemology, ontology, on the person of Christ theologically, just on the person of Christ. Not a page of all 500 of this is dedicated to the work of Christ. That's a whole nother big book, okay? This is just a book on, holy Moab. can I say that? Holy cow, Jesus, the God-man. How did that even happen? So if you're interested, here, there it is. It's like 400 pages of Christological richness. But what you're going to appreciate is, notice I didn't say, maybe you've done this, God, 100% man, have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to explain who Jesus is to your friends, and say, well, he's 100% man, 100% God, and they come back at you and say, so he's 200%? See, here's the thing with that. There's no such thing. Something's either 100%, you can't be 200% of something. Speaking as a former skeptic, this is why I appreciated this book. I want to speak with clarity. The church fathers did not say, they had the concept 100%. They didn't choose to say it that way. They said he's truly God. Whatever attributes, properties, characteristics are essential to being God, he is. Whatever attributes, properties, and characteristics are essential to being human, he is. So whatever those things are, and they tease out much of that, he is truly God and truly human. Then they don't say he's 100% this, 100% that, 200. That's incoherent, and thinking people will go, well I don't believe in Christianity because all of this doesn't make sense, it's incoherent. They'd be right if that's what we said, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying the God-man is truly God and truly man, co-equal, co-eternal, and this is the amazing thing, friends. This is the point that we have to get to. Theology takes us someplace. Paul doesn't present this just so that we can wax eloquent about theological topics. He says, and look what this God does. He doesn't consider his divinity the grounds for getting. Rather, his divinity is the grounds for giving. If anyone could have clutched on to his rights, his prerogatives, his position, his privileges, it would have been the creator. But he does not do that. He shows us what open-handed generosity is like. He shows us what it is to give of your very life friends, do you have a hard time holding on? Let me put it this way. Do you have a hard time letting go of things that are yours? Do you have a hard time um, relinquishing your right to be angry at people who've offended you? Do you have a hard time giving yourself away when there's no reason that you should do that for the sake of someone else? That is exactly Paul's point here if anyone in this transaction did not have to move an inch in the relational disruption that happened between God and humanity, it was certainly God himself. But he doesn't do that at all. He gives all of that away. Imagine if this mindset were, imagine if we took this mindset to our marriages, You imagine if husbands and wives live with this open-handed generosity, the kind of which the creator himself displayed. Imagine if we took that to all of our relationships. Do you have a friendship, a relationship where there's just fracture? There's been so much hurt, misunderstanding, confusion that you just, neither one of you are going to budge. I've got one four years in, in, in the making now. And I am haunted by it. And as I studied this passage Friday morning as I was working on it at Starbucks, God kept saying, look, if I myself will not cling to these rights, what right do you have to cling to your justified offense? What right do you have to say, I'm the one that's the victim here. I'm the one that's been sinned against. When he says, I've given it all up. Friends, if you have a relationship that it's at a stalemate because you shouldn't have to be the one that moves toward. Philippians 2 tells us you don't have the mind of Christ because the mind of Christ disregards those things and moves toward. And Jesus is showing us the way how. But the reality is, as I've stated, our fallen state it is difficult, right? So what is the essence of God? The essence of God is open handedness. What is the essence of fallen man we learned last week? In curvatos, in se, close handed guardedness. Right? The, the two are not gonna go together. Paul is deliberately juxtaposing the open handed generosity that is God's kingdom with the closed-fisted guardedness, guardedness, which is the human kingdom. And I wanna show you this slide so you can see the dramatic comparisons between life in the fallen humanity and life in God's kingdom. So let's contrast Adam. Adam, if you know, is from the Hebrew Adam, which literally means the earth creature. So it refers to men and women. We come to call it man, but it literally means the earth creature, so humanity. Adam was made in God's image, Christ, is the image of God. Adam, humanity wanted to be like God, Christ took on the likeness of men. Adam wanted to exalt himself, Christ emptied himself. Humanity was discontent being God's servant, but Christ assumed the form of a servant, a slave. Humanity arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience, but we see here in Philippians that Christ humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam succumbed to the temptation. Christ overcame temptation and crushed the tempter on top of that. Adam brought the curse on the world. Christ took the curse for the world. Adam was disgraced and condemned. We see in verse nine, Christ was exalted by the Father. What's the point here? The point that you see this theme all through the Bible is there are two humanities you can be a part of. Humanity that's under Adam, or the humanity that's under the new Adam, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. Right. So which Adam are we going to be under? question is, how, so how do we go from being a grasper to a giver? How do you adopt a mentality of downward mobility, right? We live in a world, everyone's got upward mobility on the mind. How do we adopt the downward mobility? Let me see what Paul's saying is we need the gospel. We need the second Adam, Jesus Christ, through his perfect life and atoning death. He promises forgiveness to Adam's race and empowers us to live just like him. So verse seven, we have this amazing, this, this, we've talked, this is Christ, he is God, and he does this amazing thing, the incarnation. He empties himself, he makes himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now people might read this and say, see, this is, this is why we can't believe Jesus is God, it says it right here, that he emptied himself, that he, that he made himself nothing, so he couldn't have been fully God, it says it right there. A.W. Tozer said it best in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. In Christ's humanity, he, Christ, veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. That's a very good way to put it. He, he veiled the de- his deity, but he didn't void it. Put another way, Christ, remaining all that he was, he became what he was not. Even grammatically, you know, I remember... Uh, When this reality was brought home to me years and years ago, I was a second-year Greek student, and I had a Greek professor who would say this very provocative statement. He would say, Rick, always remember this. All theology is a lie, but grammar be true. I thought that was weird because I'm at Bible college. Why is the professor telling me theology being a lie? What he meant was... A lot of times we can build our theological systems based really on what I think, what I heard, what somebody said, the tradition I may have grown up, and then it becomes our framework, our theology, but it's not even rooted in scripture. It's a combination of what I think, what I like, what I heard, or what culture is saying. And what he's saying was, look, all that is gonna be a lie. The grammar itself, has to be true. If what you believe is not rooted in scripture, and God used scripture and was confined to the issues of grammar as well, if you can't prove it from there, then you gotta question your theological systems. He says, Rick, let me take you to Philippians 2. So Jesus emptied himself and he made himself nothing. How did he do that? He said, well look at the text and at the time we were studying Greek, so we're looking at the Greek text. He says, what is that right here when it says, by, by making himself nothing? Well, I said, well, that's a participle, right? It's the participle. He says, yes, and participles usually are, they have different ways of meaning, but they usually mean um, it's a participle of means. In other words, um, I, th- I quench my thirst by means of a Coke. I know that's a bit wonky English, but you know what I'm saying. I was thirsty, how did I quench my thirst? By means of drinking a Coke right? So the means I quench my thirst is by drinking a Coke. He says, the means by which Christ gave himself away and made himself nothing is by taking on the form of a servant. He did not subtract from himself. He added to himself. He didn't make himself less. I don't know if you caught this. Maybe if you're a former Methodist, you, you might have caught this. We sang a song here, And Can It Be? There's a line that says, um, In, he emptied himself of all but humble love, That's the way people normally say it. I told Adam, we're changing that line, because that's not what he did. So we change it to, he emptied himself through humble love. Most of you didn't even catch that, but we're trying to give good theology even in our songs. The point is, he emptied himself not by subtraction, he emptied himself by adding to himself human nature. That's how God emptied himself, not by taking away, but by adding to himself. So as God, he emptied himself, and as a man, he humbled himself. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if leaving perfection for imperfection was not bad enough, he dies for our imperfections in the most humiliating and excruciating way through crucifixion. The Roman politician Cicero says this about the cross. This is years before Christ walked on the earth, or Paul, but this is what he writes. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can can describe so horrible a deed. The very word cross should be removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ear. That's how despised crucifixion was. That's how humiliating it was. You couldn't even talk about, if you're a Roman citizen, you shouldn't even talk about crucifixion in their presence. And I love the line where he says, to slay him is almost murder, right? They didn't have the value of human life we did. To slay him is almost murder. But crucifixion, are you out of your mind? That's an abomination. But look what the Bible says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So, so the writer of Hebrews follows Philippians 2, that Christ gave his life away, and as a result of that, God elevated him. He's now seated at the right hand of God. But I love what Hebrews says. It says, for the joy that was set before him. And there's a real applicable point here. We should not hear Paul's word in Philippians 2 to humility, Christ-like humility, and feel like, okay, what that means is we gotta become like pull ourselves up by the moral bootstraps and just serve other people and give, if that's not rooted in a joy of fellowship with God, like we had like Jesus had here before he came. The reason I say that is the service that Christ gives is fueled by joy. Christ wants to bring in humanity because it's fueled by joy. Not because he wants to guilt us into being like him, like misery has company or something. The reason I say that is sometimes we can serve not because it's joy for us to give our lives away. Sometimes we serve because we actually get something out of the service. Maybe you've known people like this, right? So you're the person that's always giving and giving and giving because there's some part of you that likes the self-identity of being the martyr and everyone's saying, oh, look at Rick. He's always serving. What a guy. Isn't he great? And I go, yeah, that's right. Feed my eagle. That's right. Let me love you by serving. But all the while, you're just feeding my eagle to feel needed and, and feel like that's what I am. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know how you're serving because it's the joy of the Lord that's fueling you as opposed to you're serving because you're actually getting some kind of religious uh, high out of it? What happens when the person or persons you serve don't respond the way you want them to? Don't they understand how much I love them? I'm caring for them. I'm doing all this stuff for them. I inconvenience myself for them. And this is the thanks I get. Yeah, that's usually an indication that your service is not fueled by a joy for them to understand fellowship with Christ. It's usually your service is a means of filling up some kind of ego in your own self. I know that's hard to hear, but that's a reality because that's what Christ is calling us to. Not a joy out of selfishness, not a service out of selfishness, but a service out of humility. The best way I could describe it is uh, I was with a couple of the guys yesterday and, and Kyle Norman had this brilliant, brilliant insight. He said, it's kind of like watching something really funny on YouTube that you just enjoy. Your first instinct is I gotta find someone to share this with. Have you ever had that experience? When something thrills you, it's not complete until other people are involved in it, right? And you don't get mad because they don't wanna watch it. You understand, but you're still joyous from it. And that's what I think is happening in the, the Trinity, Christ's joy of fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, and he wants all of humanity to experience this joy, and he's giving. And friends, that's the way we want to give. We want to serve, not because we're getting. We want to serve because that's how we give, because it's such a joy. Here's that joy. I kind of told you what it is, but I want to take us to Isaiah uh, 53. It's one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament that it is the suffering servant. And this is what Isaiah said in uh, 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now keep in mind, Isaiah is the prophet writing this down. But this is from the perspective of God the Father writing about his redemptive plan. Through Isaiah the prophet, out of the anguish of his soul, he's speaking of Christ, the suffering servant, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The joy of Christ was the transformation, the redemption, the salvation of humanity. And for that joy, he endured the cross. The creator of the trees that the cross was formed by hung on it, despising the shame. The shame he received from the men and the women he made who mocked him. And he did it because of the joy of seeing people transformed and redeemed and brought back. To see grubby, self-guarding people transformed into open-handed, gracious givers who are willing to sacrifice of themselves for the good of others to see people become like him. It's gonna be my last point, but let let me put that on the side for a little bit. So finally, then notice in verse nine, Paul says that really this is the key to understanding God's way of doing things That the way up is down, to be first is last. That weakness is the new strength, that to gain means to give, because we see that in Christ. And so he says in verse 9, therefore, because all this is true of Christ, the creator himself, therefore, he is now lifted up, exalted, the triumphant Christ. Because Jesus went down, God raised him up. Because Jesus gave all, all was given back. Because Jesus let go, God gave to him. Because Jesus was made low, God made him high. You see, Paul's point again, is that Jesus is not just simply our example of humility, Jesus is also our example of exaltation. This is how God's economy works, friends. From beginning to end, this is how God's economy works, that those who make themselves low and of a humble spirit, God will elevate and, and establish and esteem. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that. So in the historical books, David writes about it. In 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-eight. 28, he says, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the proud to bring them down. In the wisdom literature, the same message, Proverbs three thirty-four: toward the arrogant, the Lord will be arrogant but to the humble he gives favor and grace. In the New Testament, James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but he raises up the humble. Why, why does God work that way? Because that is exactly his nature. You see, in Jesus, being God himself, doing this thing, all that we're talking about in Philippians, he's displaying the very self-sacrificial and giving nature of God himself. And so, any self seeking and glory thieving is the very antithesis of his character. So, he comes against that in any form. It's the very antithesis of him, and it's the very antithesis of his people. And so, Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but rather looking to the interests of others. Consider others more significant than yourselves. He's not saying you're not significant. But he's saying, consider others more significant than yourselves, because this is exactly how God functions. And as reflections of God in this world, and that's what the church is, friends, that's what we are at the end of the day. We are a display of the character and glory of God. Wow. That's what we are. And that's why the New Testament hammers on relationships and will not let you go if there's division or fracture or uh, disunity, because when the world sees that, the world writes us off. More importantly, the world writes off the gospel. This is why living a holy life is so important. Not because you want to stay in the club, right? Not because you want to keep the elders happy not because you want to be patted on the back for being a good moral person, but because you reflect the moral character of God. And friends, when when the world sees non-Christians acting just like them, how can we expect them to know the glory and joy of Christ when there's no transformation in our own lives? And so we do this because we want to reflect his character, not because we just want to do what the Bible says. Yes, that's true, but because we want to reflect the character of our God. Well, um, we're going to take a two-week break from um, Philippians, because we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, and then Easter the week after that, when we come back to our study in Philippians, Paul's going to talk about how a community of humility shines as lights to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this really dense passage of Scripture, but we thank you, Lord, that it always drives us to probably the, the inner sanctum of what is reality, the very preexistent Christ and, and, and the work of him coming to earth, dying for our sins and being exalted again. But to make a very practical point, if this is how you live, how then should we live? Father, forgive us for clinging to our rights, our privileges. Forgive us for buying into the world's economy of the way things work rather than being transformed by your way by your economy. Help us to realize that to to gain means to give, to be first means to be last, to be the greatest means to be the servant, because we see that in you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.